This morning, we are going to uh, be beginning a new little mini-series in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 21. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We won't get too far into it uh, this morning, but we are going to look um, in broad sense at verses 1 through 8. That's what I'll read now. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, this week, as we find almost every week, we have both news that is encouraging and discouraging, um, especially with respect to this COVID-19 situation. We hear, we hear one week that there's a, a vaccine that's nearby, and then we hear from other experts that say, well, we may never have uh, a vaccine. Uh, we see uh, an upward trend in cases, and then we see a downward trend. This week in Ontario, we had an upward trend in cases. And we wonder, what does this all mean? Will the government roll back the restart of, its, of the economy here? And where does it all end? And that's actually a really important question. And not just in respect to the current pandemic. Um, it's an important question for all of us. We need to know how things end. When I was a, a, a boy, uh, I read a lot of books. <laughs> I loved books. And, but I was a, an impatient reader. Um, and I would often flip to the end of the book to, uh, or the end of the section of that book just to make sure that everything turned out, especially if there was tension. I did this particularly with one of my favorite books as a boy, uh, The Lord of the Rings, because there's lots of these little uh, things. I'm rereading it now with my children in our, in our time of uh, a pandemic. And there's like pages and pages of elven runes and, and songs that go on and on and on. And you just sort of get impatient. You're like, well, how does this end? Uh, let's, let's, how does this tension resolve? Are the characters 
that I've invested myself in, are, are they alive at the end? What happens? And in some sense, that, that sort of impatience is, is trying to determine, is it worth the effort? You see, as human beings, we need encouragement. We need hope to keep going in difficult times. We need to know how it ends. That's why the book of Revelation was written. Did you know that? It wasn't written as sort of just a, uh, I think some people view the book of Revelation as like a guide to the end times. And it does provide some instruction and some, uh, some, some way, but it's, that's actually not the reason why it was written. Uh, we think of it as a book of mystery, but we, we forget that the, the actual purpose of the book of Revelation is very simple. It's to convey the end. It's to convey the end that Jesus wins. I've often shared the, uh, the illustration of, uh, that, that uh, Vern Poitras uses in the introduction to his book, his, his commentary on Revelation, but I think it's helpful you know, he, he talks about the, the students in the seminary cafeteria where, the, where he is. And they're all looking and they, they see the janitor reading, uh, reading his, his, his Bible. And they see that he's reading Revelation. And, you know, seminary students thinking that they know everything think, oh, well, we'll just go over there and, and tell him, you know, ask him if he knows what he, what's going on. And then we'll, you know, unfold the latest eschatological goodness for him so that he can learn from us. And they go over to him. And uh, they ask him the question, you know, what, what, what do you think Revelation is about? And he says, oh, Jesus wins. And they're left speechless because that is what Revelation is all about. It's about the victory of God over sin. It's about the reconciliation of God with man, the, the final consummation, the triumph over Satan in, that, that was promised where there would be one who would come who would crush the serpent's head. And that's, that, that's vividly portrayed through this picture language that we find in the book of Revelation. And it wasn't written as a book to fuel conspiracy theories or to bind us up on knots, in knots. It was written by the Apostle John from the prison island of Patmos to encourage Christians who are going through difficult times. Christians who are being persecuted and killed by the thousands, burned alive, thrown to lions, and crucified under Roman persecution. And it was this book that was written to encourage them, to give them a view to the end. This is what helped them in their times of trouble. And I think this is something that can help us in our time of trouble as well. I think we are indeed uh, uh, needing this view to the end. You see, having a view to the end helps you to endure. This was a, a practical lesson that the psychiatrist, um, uh, Viktor Frankl, learned in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. He wrote uh, many books on this. Man's Search for Meaning is probably uh, his most famous one that he did. But in that, he described uh, what he learned while he was in the concentration camp. And he learned that the people who survived were not the ones who were most physically robust and physically healthy. He saw strong men die very quickly and skinny, sort of sickly individuals survive right to the end. And he was able to see the reason why some survived versus others. 
and he identified it as hope. Those who had hope, those who had meaning, those who had purpose were able to endure to the end because they had a view to the end. And so he would encourage uh, people that came into the camp to think about what they had to live for, whether it was a, a spouse or a child or a religious meaning or purpose. And that was something that he understood. And this is what the book of Revelation does. It helps us. It helps us to remember what life is all about. We see God has created us to be in fellowship with him. We're created, we're made in his image. But because of sin, we have been alienated from God. And thus, our relationship with him is blocked by our sin. Heaven is where that relationship if we come to faith in Christ Jesus, is restored. Because through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can enter into the Holy of Holies and be with God and dwell with him forever. And this is what we're created to do. We're created to go to heaven, to be with God. C.S. Lewis once said that heaven is the remote music we are born remembering. Nice way to think about it, isn't it? It's the remote music that we are born remembering. And as we hear the gospel and as we hear the truth and the glory and, 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 and the beauty of the word of God, it resonates in our hearts. And we long for that. We look forward to that as we see the muck and the mire of the world around us. We need to remember this, especially in bad times. We need real hope. Kind of interesting, I thought, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a viral video that went out um, by uh, Wonder Woman actress Gal Gadot. And it was uh, where she got a bunch of her, her celebrity friends to sing on Instagram uh, the song Imagine by John Lennon. And uh, it was criticized in the media for being indulgent, out of touch with reality as these celebrities in their mansions were supposedly ministering to us and singing and, uh, and also because the singing was particularly bad. But I thought it was kind of ironic because of the, the, the choice, right? The, the, the whole point of the song, imagine, it's a very catchy tune. I'm sure you've heard it before, but the lyrics are terribly unhelpful. Um, the song begins, imagine there's no heaven. And the message of the song is essentially to live for today. Now, the underlying assumption expressed in that song is a reflection of the old quote you probably heard people use before to dismiss religious thinking. And it goes like this. He's so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. Now, I want to say to you, and I want to challenge that statement by saying that the absolute opposite is what's true. We need to be heavenly minded so that we can be of any earthly good. One of the greatest needs we have is to confront and consider eternal things and to act now in light of them. As the famous British preacher J.C. Ryle said, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. Because if you think about it, if you do not think about heaven and you do not think about accountability, why would you care for others? Why would you show mercy and grace 
to those around you. If it's just about you, if it's just about living for today, it's a very self-indulgent lifestyle, sort of reflective of the celebrity approach. But it's not something that, that brings real hope and real joy and real lasting pleasure to our lives. But so many people are invested in that. And here's the other thing. It's imagining there is no heaven. But the Bible very clearly tells us there is a heaven and that there is a hell. And we can't escape that reality. But there are a lot of misconceptions about what heaven really is. As I've said before, I think a lot of us have the the view of heaven that it's like the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial from years ago where they're they're floating around on wings and, you know, eating cream cheese and twanging harps and, and eating cream cheese bagels and that kind of thing. But I want to state categorically, at risk of offending our cream cheese aficionados out there, that it is not at all like that. It's so much better that it almost defies description. And I think that's actually key when we start looking at Revelation, because John uses a form of description that is very appropriate to what he's seeking to describe, but very foreign to us living in the 21st century. He uses what we call apocalyptic language. And when we think of the apocalypse, we think of, uh, of you know, nuclear holocaust and that kind of thing. But that's not what apocalyptic language is meant to convey. It's meant to, uh, to, to describe in picture language something that is totally wonderful, to, uh, to, to reveal revelation, to reveal to us um, the, the reality. And so it's full of symbolisms and symbols on symbols. Like our passage this morning has a city coming down and then a city that's a bride. It's, it's this mixed metaphor and it seems so strange. Um, but this was common language in the first century. But it's worth our time to unpack it and to understand it because it's worthwhile and glorious what it's seeking to convey. Last year, when our family was going through um, a difficult time with the death of my wife's mother and uncle within a week, and in the very depths of it, I had spent a week studying the book of Revelation. I preached a single sermon on Revelation 21, the passage that I'm going to bring before you this morning. But I, I found it so personally profitable, and at times, I regretted that I didn't continue with that series. And then this week, um, I had a pastoral acquaintance of mine. Uh, pass away. He, he passed away suddenly. He was, he was killed in a motor vehicle accident. And I happened to look back and I saw that his last sermon was actually preached on this passage. Um, and it was entitled Life in Heaven. What an appropriate way for him. And, and I got to thinking, isn't this something that's worthwhile doing? I, I intend at some point to do a whole series on Revelation, but I don't want to wait for that. And I think it's helpful and encouraging to us to, to delve into it. So I'm going to start a little mini-series over the next few weeks with looking at the end of the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, entitled A View to the End, to give us all some hope and some help to endure. And this morning I want to talk uh, really about the new heavens and the new earth. And we're only going to scratch the surface here. Um, Again, as I was looking at it, uh, these first eight verses, there's a lot here. So we're only going to really 
look at it from a surface perspective. We're going to delve into it more as we go forward. But we're going to spend some time together reveling in this glorious and mysterious vision that the Apostle John gives us here in Revelation 21. Remember, again, John is writing to an embattled and persecuted people, uh, and he's writing to give them the hope of the final victory over Satan, over sin, over death, and to give them the hope of, of an eternal existence in the presence of a living God. Whatever your current circumstances is, in Christ Jesus, in the gospel that he has provided to us, we have access to a wonderful truth. And understanding that truth can indeed inform how we live our lives in the current crisis and in any other future crises that are there. In the context of the book of Revelation, as we come to chapter 21, there's been a series of visions that, that uh, John has had, and this is the, the seventh and final vision uh, of a new heavens and a new earth. It begins here in, a verse, in, in chapter 21. But we've seen uh, th throughout, and it comes immediately after the vision of the defeat of Satan in chapter 20. And so what we're looking at is really the end of the book, the end of the story, the end of, uh, of, of what we have come to, to understand as the, the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And he's presenting this. There's He's presenting what the glory of heaven will be with no temptation, no shame, and as our passage says, no more tears. Again, as we go through a time of loss and as we go through difficulty, it's encouraging to remind ourselves that even in the midst of grief, we can look forward to a time where there is no more tears. So we're going to begin by looking at these first eight verses. We won't really get very far, not really much beyond verses one and two but I hope it will encourage you to come back, not just next week, but come back to this text, to, to spend some time meditating on heaven to, so that you can be and will be of earthly good as you engage with the realities of this. I think it can be very practical and helpful for us to see this vision of eternity to help us not to be lazy, not to waste the time that God has given to us, but to delight in the gift of grace and in the gift of life that we might use it fully to glorify and to enjoy God. There's so many riches that we could get into this morning, but I'm just going to do two to get us introduced to this. Um, two concepts that I think this section is teaching us. First, that heaven is new. And secondly, that heaven is pure. First of all, the first thing to believe, I think, here is that heaven is new. And what is being conveyed here is this newness. Newness is repeated multiple times throughout this passage. And the idea is that the old has passed away, that redemptive history has been accomplished. Jesus' work on the cross has, has resulted in a final triumph over Satan. And the, the, the end of the, 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 the Bible marks not just the end of the world, but the beginning of something new, something amazing. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And at this point, Jesus has come. He has triumphed over the grave. He has risen again. But what John has in view here is the return of Jesus. All things are made new. 
But what does that mean? What does this, this word new mean? A new heavens and a new earth. The old will pass away. Now, does this mean that there will be an absolute utter uh, destruction of everything before or, uh, and, and then something perfectly brand new with, with no years on it will, will come in, 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 into play? Or is it something else? Well, I think it's important for us to see here that what, what's happening here is that the new heavens and the new earth is a different kind of newness that's being described here. Notice here that the, the heavens come down. Right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw a holy city, verse 2, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what this conveys in very pictorial language is that heaven coming down is a new gift of divine work and divine origin. And it represents a restoration of the relationship between God and man reflected in this concept of marriage, this covenantal concept of marriage that we see throughout the scriptures, right? This is the relationship that's often used by the Old Testament prophets, right? Where we see, for example, Hosea instructed to go out and marry a prostitute. And that's a picture of God's relationship with Israel, which instead of following him and loving him and being faithful to him like a faithful spouse, goes off and goes in other directions. But here in Revelation, that marital relationship between God and his people is renewed in purity. And it's a new uh, it's a new covenant. It's a, it, it's a consummation of the marriage. And what we see here is it comes to us as a gift, right? Heaven is a gift that is given, not a reward that's earned. And this is something that I think is really, really important for us to understand because almost every other religion operates on the idea that heaven is a reward. You get what you deserve. You get the karma that you deserve. You get the paradise that you earn through your religious acts, right? That's how almost every other religion's economy works, is you do the good things and you get heaven as a reward. But heaven is, is a reward, and a, but it is a gift that is not earned. It comes down to earth. And it's wrapped and it's delivered to us by the Alpha and the Omega. The same title, by the way, that he uses back in chapter one of Revelation, where he declared, where he declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who was, is to come, the Almighty. And here it is, he's delivering it to us, and it's, it's a fulfillment of the promise that we read in our call to worship back in Isaiah 65. This, this, this uh, relationship that is restored and brought together where there will be no tears anymore. There'll be no mourning. There'll be no crying. And there will be longevity of life and experience. God, the master of time, will fulfill the promises he made thousands of years ago. And John here gives us a vision of that. Now, this word new is really important. In fact, this is where our real focus is this morning. In the Greek, there are two words that can be used for new. The New Testament was written in Greek, and 
uh, obviously, we, we want to understand, I'm not trying to create some sort of mysticism here, but the way it's translated, we see it as new, but there are two different words that are used. There's the word kainos, and then there is the word neos. Now, the word neos means something that has just recently appeared. It means young in terms of uh, duration. Something that is neos means it, it's not been around for very long. It's just brand new, like a ba brand new baby or something that is, that is very young. But kainos is a different, has a different meaning. And this is the word that we see actually repeated throughout our section. The newness that he's using here is, is the newness of kainos. And what is interesting is it's a word that is translated as new, but it's not talking so much about duration as it is talking about quality. Okay, so neos speaks about newness and, and duration and time, but kainos refers to quality, right? Uh, it's, it, it's, it, we try to, to think about how to illustrate this. Um, I was thinking about my LED bulbs. Now, I don't know if this is true in Barbados, but here in Canada, we've been basically forced to switch to these uh, compact fluorescents and these LED bulbs and they're supposed to last for decades but i don't know about you many of mine have already uh blown out and uh what's interesting about uh leds is that they do last longer but what you notice is and i noticed that this week as i was replacing one of the the bulbs in my uh i have three bulbs in in, in a little overhead fan and uh, one of them uh, actually blew and i put a new one in and what was interesting was, this was new, this was neos, it was, it was a brand new one, but it was also kainos, because it was new and it was brighter than the other ones. It was better than the other ones because it had a newness, a, a brightness that was there. So it was a new bulb and it was a brighter bulb. And here's the reality, right? Things, over time, they degrade. And this is the reality that that we deal with in this world of sin. Before the fall, there was no death. There was no, uh, there was no decay, but that was introduced ultimately by sin. And because of that, the world is in decay and we are dealing with finite resources and we are seeing the increase and the multiplication of all of that around us. But then the interesting thing about this, and I, I found this really interesting as I was studying this, particularly this week, is that with God, there is a, a newness that is not just related to newborn children. I'm getting older. I'll be 47 this year. and I've got aches and pains and things. And, and I look around at, at my children. My, one of my daughters loves to do contortion, and she can do all these sort of poses. I'm like, I could never do that. I could end up with a hernia or, or something else like that because my body just isn't quite capable of doing the same things that an 11- or a 12-year-old body is capable of doing. As much as I would like to believe that, increasingly, I am decreasing in what I can do, and they are at the peak or the prime. But eventually, they too will decrease in what they can do. And so when we understand this, we understand that naos doesn't last, okay? But the neat thing about this is that 
the newness that is being spoken about here is not newness in terms of age, but newness in terms of quality. Because with God, there is kainos without naos, newness without aging. This is true renewal. This is what he's speaking about in this passage. Heaven comes down and grants us a quality of newness. We're new and even better than before. And Jesus is the first fruits of this, right? You remember when Jesus came to earth, he was born uh, and he took on human flesh and he lived and he died, but then he was resurrected. But there was aspects of his resurrected body that had uh, indeed connections to his former body. It wasn't as if his former body was destroyed. His body was restored. It was made kainos. It was made new. And, and indeed, he still had the marks on his hands that, 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 that Thomas could. And he wasn't just a ghost. Right? He wasn't floating around on some cream puff cloud up in the sky. No, he ate fish. He ate. But he was able to do things. And we're not sure how much of those things are connected to his deity and to, uh, to, and to his humanity. But he certainly seemed to uh, radiate and he seemed to appear and move um, in different ways after he was resurrected. And Jesus is the first fruits. And so it's helpful for us to, to understand that, 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 that the newness here being described is one of, uh, of restored quality or enhanced quality. And it's, it's really hard to explain this because we really don't have any paradigm for this that, 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 that is perfectly consistent other than the example of Jesus Christ, which is the, who is the first fruits of our resur resurrection. He is the only one that is truly resurrected. As we've said before, Lazarus uh, was revivified. He was brought back to life, but then he died again. But Jesus was raised to life everlasting, and he was, he, he was ascended to the right hand of God. And when we're restored, we will be restored to die no more. That's what the scriptures uh, teach for us. And so it's important for us to understand this. And yet it's hard. I was thinking about it in, in another light. Like children, you know, love caterpillars. And we're almost into caterpillar season as we get into the spring and summer here. And uh, caterpillars have a certain beauty. Uh, I don't see it as much because I see them like snakes and I think snakes should be taken out because I don't like them. But uh, caterpillars have a certain beauty. But then I think we can all agree when they go into that cocoon and emerge from that cocoon, they come with a greater beauty and a greater quality than they had before. It's still the same um, living thing, but it is a living thing that has been transformed, that has been renewed. And, and now this caterpillar is a butterfly and, and, and has additional qualities. And, and it, it's far more than, than that. Some of, the, some of the ugliest caterpillars that you will see turn in the most beautiful of butterflies. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of, I, I think, or an illustration to a certain extent of this this quality of newness that's being talked about in our text here, the kainos that's there. And I really appreciate this. Uh, and I, I, Tim Keller has, has a statement on this, and he says, it, it's only in God that you have kainos uh, it, with, it, without naos. In other words, that you can have a newness that's not just a new life beginning, but it is something where the quality, the newness is, 
is, uh, is given and, and it's expanded. It's a beautiful new heaven and a new world. But one of the basic questions is, why do we need this? Why do we need this new world? Why will this old world pass away? And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of Christians don't think enough about heaven. Because we're so easily pleased with what we have here on earth. I really think that it's important for us to be heavenly minded so that we can be of really effective use on this earth. We end up frittering away a lot of our time and our energy because we are not heavenly minded, because we haven't given that sense, because we, we think we have enough with what we have in front of us. If I have a paycheck, if I have a, a, a fat bank account, if I can provide for my needs, if I can have some enjoyment and some pleasure, if I can have some, some relationship, then, then I don't really need more. Right? And we get sort of comfortable. But the reality is that we, we need a new world because this world is corrupted. God created a perfect world, but our sin has corrupted it. As we've read before in, in Romans 8, as we've been going through in our morning services in Toronto before, Paul says, the creation has been subjected to futility. And that's how life feels sometimes, doesn't it? An exercise in futility. Because even when we enjoy pleasures and things like that, we constantly bump up against the reality of sin and evil. And we see this. We see this. I think more and more we're, a lot of us are watching the news on television, but I think a lot of people have turned off the news. Because, and, and even the news I've noticed is not emphasizing so much the facts and figures and statistics of COVID and some of those things because it gets repetitive and it gets a little depressing and discouraging. We don't like to be reminded of things. We, we always find that the end of the newscast, they end it on like a happy note, right? Where they show you some sort of good that's going on. And it's as if that little bit of good will sort of help us to forget all the bad murders and, and, and deaths and everything else that went before. Uh, but there is a reality that there is a need for a new heavens and a new earth because the, 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 the current earth has been subject to futility. But here is something that is a real hope for us, something that we can grasp onto in the midst of this. We don't have to just turn off the news. I was talking to somebody recently who said that they had stopped watching the news because it made it difficult for them to sleep at night. They found it hard to sleep at night as they considered the reality of life and death. And so they decided instead of watching the news at night, that they would replace that with a comedy show. And they would try and laugh their way to sleep, and they would try and laugh the troubles of the world away. But you see, that's a, really, that's a really sad way of dealing with the reality of life and death in our world. There's a much more beautiful way for us to gain hope and encouragement. It's not by avoiding the problem, because that's what a lot of people do right? They just avoid the situation. I'm just going to watch comedy. I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to watch the reality of sin and death as it unfolds in our neighborhood. I, I would prefer to sort of keep myself isolated, right? Just keep that stuff on the outside. But we can't avoid it, can we? I mean, 
Yesterday, I was out for a walk with my son, Noah. We were walking down the street and all of a sudden, we saw a police car come off the highway with another car. And he was flashing his lights and we thought he was just gonna stop, but then the car sped up and there was a high speed car chase around the neighborhood. And I actually pulled Noah behind me so that he wouldn't get hit if the car ran out of control. But it was like, wow, you know, like you see it on TV and you see, you know, that it's sort of like an entertaining type thing. And it, it but it's, but this is reality that there are people every day that are living and dying and sinning and stealing and, and doing whatever it is to, to, uh, to interact negatively with the law. And this is a reality that's there and going and just going back to our home and, and just watching something comedic to, to forget about it, that doesn't actually confront the reality that we see in our lives today. But the scriptures here don't cause us to put our head in the sand. They cause us to look at the reality and to gain hope, right? Look at verse four and five. There are, I think, no more hopeful verses that we can see in the scriptures. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? This is a hope that we can grasp onto. Because in the midst of our, our grief and our mourning, it is something that helps us. This is real help. It's hard when someone passes away. When a family member or a friend passes away, the grief comes in upon us and it feels like there's no sort of leaving it. There's no sort of escaping it. And it, it can be crushing. And it's hard to, to gain perspective and to see beyond it. But this gives us a vision beyond. It gives us something to hope forward, to look forward to. It doesn't outline in detail exactly what is going to be. And, and there's certain questions that we have. But again, like the caterpillar doesn't know what the butterfly is going to be. He just does what he, he just presses on. This gives us a view of what the, the butterfly stage will be like for us as Christians. This gives us a view, the fact that, that however God reconciles it, however God works in his justice, the, the, the sadness and the grief that is so crushing to us right now, the sin and the, the wickedness that seems so prevalent and overwhelming right now will all come to an end. And that there will be a day where we will not cry anymore. We will not weep anymore. But we will be forever joyful in the presence of our God. For the former things have passed away. And the kainos, the newness, has come. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it's hard. This is why we need to meditate on heaven. One of the hardest things for our family when we experienced the recent loss of Val's mother and her uncle within a week was just trying to help our children to understand and to explain it. Um, remember, particularly our youngest struggled for weeks after she had passed. He would ask prayer that she would be healed, that she would be made new. And we would explain to him over and over that it's gone and that she's gone and that 
it was, it was just heartbreaking for us as a family. But we can also point at the same time to the hope that this passage gives us is the hope that th this will all be reconciled in God's greatness and his economy. And there will be a day when there is no more sadness. The sadness that we feel will be no more. And again, it's hard. Some of you are going through that right now. But the news here is that death is not the end. And the end, and this is the, the, the amazing thing about Revelation, even as we introduce this little series this morning, the end is so much better than the beginning. So much beyond our wildest dreams or whatever conspiracies or whatever movies could, or whatever we could imagine, right? The reality is we don't need to imagine there's no heaven. We don't even need to imagine that there is a heaven. There is a heaven. It is real. It is real. And we, if we know Jesus Christ, are going there. And this, this new city is, is, is a beautiful city. It's coming down from heaven. Genesis started with a garden, right? And now we have a city full and complex brought down, but not a city like Toronto or Bridgetown that are dirty and, and have all kinds of underbellies and, and seedy districts. No, this is a perfect city. And we'll see that as we look next week and as we delve further into the city that came down. But there's a new heavens and a new earth that is perfect that has come to us. But again, this is something that's in the future. How does this newness help us right now? It's all well and good to talk about this, the future. And, and indeed, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, right? We have people that criticize Christianity. Like Karl Marx said that Christianity is the, or religion is the opiate of the masses. It's meant to keep them in line so that they, they, they don't complain and they don't revolt and, and they don't deal with the, the situation. That, that was his argument. And so he saw religion as, as a, a really big problem because he, 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 he thought that it would make us of no earthly good. That's, he literally believed that, that concept. But that's not actually what heaven is designed to do. Heaven is designed to give us help and hope in the present. John Piper writes about Richard Baxter, um, who was a very effective pastor in England in the 1600s. And he says this, his whole life, his whole adult life of Richard Baxter was spent battling one sickness after the other. He was harassed by a constant cough, frequent nosebleeds, migraine headaches, digestive ailments, kidney stones, and gallstones. He believed in supernatural healing and said several times he was restored to fruitful labor because of God's direct intervention. Yet, bodily suffering was with him to the end. He once said that from the age of 21, he was seldom an hour free from pain. Some of you know what that feels like. Some of you are going through situations where you have chronic pain. Now, one of the effects of Baxter's sufferings was to make him intensely conscious. This is something that sickness does. It makes us intensely conscious of the temporariness of life and the inevitability of death. Once when Baxter was 35, he was bedbound by one of the diseases, and his thought was that he probably wouldn't ever recover. 
And he began to meditate on the joys of heaven and the age uh, to come in preparation for leaving the world. He focused especially on the hope of glory. And he began to write down his thoughts. And to his surprise, he recovered when he was 35, and his thoughts became a book entitled The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And he took up the practice as a result of this of meditating on heaven a half an hour each day because of the powerful impact it had on his life. It made everything come into focus. When you look at things in the light of eternity, it really changes things. Our family has been touched by death and in various other ways. I think it's made us think more of these things. Certainly one of the things that we've done on a practical level is we've made out our wills. We've done some of those things as we have seen death and as we've been touched by different things, you start to take action. And Baxter took this further and he started meditating on the end in order to help him in the present to see what was actually worth his time, his energy, and his effort. He said this, he said, if you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted, and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. Isn't this something as Christians that we struggle with? We struggle to know why we're doing what we're doing. We know that we ought to do things, and there is, there's a relationship between our duty and our delight. But how do we inform our duty so that it becomes a delight? Heaven. Heaven. That's Baxter's encouragement. I think this is the encouragement that this scripture gives. Meditating on heaven is one of the means by which we can increase our joy because it puts our earthly travails and troubles into its proper perspective because this isn't all that we're living for one of the reasons why we are so negative one of the reasons why we are so depressed i think as a society is because we are trying to make heaven on earth that's really what we're trying to do we're trying to have a, a, a world without trouble a world without financial pain or suffering or whatever else, and, and we do whatever we can. We do whatever exercise programs, we, do, we diet so that we have the sleek bodies that we want, we, we do all those things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with healthy living. But you have to put that healthy living in perspective. Because no matter what you do, and the beauty industry will spend billions of dollars to try and convince you otherwise, no matter what you do, your, your face is going to wrinkle. Your body is going to degrade. If you live long enough, you will almost certainly, if you're male, get prostate cancer, or you will almost certainly have major complications. And we can say without, uh, without a question, we will all die, for it is all appointed for man to die and after that to face the judgment. Hebrews 9 tells us this. So it's really worth our time and our effort to... To, to, to spend time meditating on heaven, to believe the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All this world is passing away. Even that truth of just reflecting on that this week, 
just this week, think about that. This world is passing away. And if that's true, how should that govern your actions and your words and your thoughts and your deeds? So the implication of this is clear. There's no point in trying to make a heaven now on earth. Right? What Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where wrath and moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But how much of your time and energy is focused on that? And how much of your time and energy is focused on heaven? Again, I don't think I've ever met someone who's so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. Because I believe that the ones who are heavenly minded are doing earthly good. They're redeeming the time that they have. So heaven is new. It's kainos, not naos. It's new in terms of quality. It's new in terms of a, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It is, it is a hope that does not spoil, perish, or fade. A hope that doesn't die. And that fuels us as we consider our current situation. Because this is not the end. If you have to stay in your house for the rest of your life, it's not the end of the world. This is, and it's so much better. Well, heaven is not just new. And it's important for us to understand in terms of priorities. When we look at the second aspect, heaven is also pure. What John describes here is a heaven that is pure. With the defeat of Satan secured in heaven, there is no more sin, Satan, or sea. Now, a lot of people have puzzled over that, that statement there where it says that there, the sea was no more there in verse 1. What does John mean here when he says there will be no more sea? Does that mean that there will be no more water, no more beaches? I love the beach. I've been taking my kids down for walks by the beach. And I know in Barbados that's a shore, but it's, it's a beach for us, okay? All right. So no more beaches? And, and, but, but then we see this in, in, in the context of uh, chapter 22, where we see the living water being presented. And we'll see that in a future um, week. And we'll look at that, that concept of water a little bit more. But in chapter 22, the river of, of life is there. And he speaks very positively over water imagery. So why is this strange statement that we see here in Revelation uh, 21, 1, the sea was no more. And again, we need to understand that this is this apocalyptic type symbolic language that John is speaking for. And that, thus, the, the physical descriptions are representative and symbolic of another reality, a greater reality. And if you were to study the book of Revelation, you would see that the sea, particularly this word that he uses for sea here, is uh, something out of which the beast of Revelation emerged, part of Satan's counterfeit trinity. I know there's lots there that I could unpack. It's really cool if you read the book of Revelation and you can get in all into the details about the counterfeit trinity with a prostitute and all, all kinds of different things. Don't get distracted by that now. Maybe uh, in a couple of years I will open up a, a full exposition of the book of Revelation, and we can explore that stuff together. But for now, what's important for you to understand, it is out of the sea that chaos, that sin emerges in, the, uh, in Revelation. And the sea was attributed 
in the Old Testament to chaos and judgment. And one of the things we see even way back in chapter one of Genesis is that the spirit of God hovers over the waters and brings order and dry land. And the spirit, the Holy Spirit in creation brings order to, to this, bringing order out of chaos. But you see, the point here when it says that there is no sea doesn't mean that there won't be, there won't be water, there won't be the, 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 the beauty that we have. Remember, the, 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 the kainos is, is greater than the naos. It's, it's more beautiful. It'll be more, more glorious than, than the, the best view that you can have at Pebble Beach or, or down by uh, Ch Cherry, Cherry Beach here in Toronto. It's better than anything that you could ever conceive of or look at. It will be far better. But that's not the issue. The issue is the chaos that it represents in the, 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 the image of chaos that's associated with the sea. That will be no more because there will be no more sin. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears in heaven. It will be pure. And again, we get this picture of the purity of heaven when we see the adorning of the bride for her husband there in verse Two, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And again, this is again where we see the, the images multiplied to convey a, a reality that's not meant to be visual. It's funny, isn't it? Like we, we, we are very visual people, and so we sort of uh, identify that. And I remember um, somebody do, drew a drawing. There's a famous drawing that's been driven, drawn of the the ideal woman based on uh, Song of Solomon and it has, a, has a neck that's way up here and like the proportions are, are, are radically out of, um, out of context. And, and when they draw it like that, that's not what it looks like. But the, the, the imagery that's conveyed here is, is a superlative imagery. It's something that is, that is so great and so wonderful here. And so the city here is shown again in contrast to a garden this is a developed area, something that's perfect and plunked right down before us. And it's beautiful. I am not a very good builder. My wife is the builder in our family. And during uh, our, our, uh, our pandemic, she has been building a new shed because our old shed has um, fallen down. And I'm just amazed. I go out there and I look in our backyard and you know, like I can't even conceive where you start, but She's out there. She's built this beautiful wooden shed behind our tree, and it's gorgeous. And, and she's built it up, and, and it, it just emerges. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, for me, it's just this chaos of, uh, of, of building materials that I had to lay, haul in. I, I'm, the, I'm the laborer. She's the, she's the craftswoman, and she, she puts it together. And, and, and this, is, this is what this picture of the city, right? Not, not a garden anymore, but a developed city, a perfect city, not a dirty city, but a perfect city comes down. And the, the image that's mixed in there is a, as a bride coming before um, her, her husband. Again, the image, can, can, we can relate to it on some level, right? When we think of a young woman and we think of uh, when she is at her prime and at her most beautiful and it's, it's at her wedding day, it doesn't matter necessarily um, when she gets married in terms of if she's young or old, there's something about when, when, a, when a bride comes down the aisle on her wedding day, right? She comes in a wedding dress. She doesn't wear 
a bathing suit because the bathing suit would be too revealing. A wedding dress is meant to adorn. It's meant to, to beautify. And this is the picture here of uh, the New Jerusalem. And again, the, the image here is of the church. It's, it's what we will be like. You see, the work of Jesus on the cross is what purifies us. It, it is what, what changes us and what adorns us as we come into the presence of our God. And this is what is there, that this picture of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, it is this relational marital imagery uh, that is coming to the forefront here, where we will experience uh, a, a renewal of fellowship and communication that is, that is absolutely stupendous. It's beyond even what we can imagine. It's like those, 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 uh, those news pictures that you see where people are, are talking to their loved ones through glass. And then uh, at, the, at the end of it, there was a beautiful um, video, I think uh, one of our brothers shared in, in the WhatsApp, of an Italian father, grandfather, greeting his child. And you could just see the evident joy when they came, come into face-to-face -face relationship with each other. He's able to wrap them up and, and take them up into his arms. That is the picture of of uh, a, a, a consummated relationship, a, a picture of a relationship of coming together face-to-face -to -face fully and beautifully. And this, this picture of the bride is, again, apocalyptic literature often has a contrast, right? Whereas the, there's the Trinity, the triune God, there's the, the counterfeit Trinity of Satan. And where there is the bride, there is also the purified bride. There is the contrast. We see this back in, in Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2. Because the bride of Christ is, is contrasted with the prostitute. Then one of the seven angels uh, had, who had the seven bowls came, 17 verse 1, and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he takes them, he gives them a vision of this. So the counterpart vision to this is what God has done to prepare us as a bride. This is the contrast, the, the wife of the lamb, the church of Jesus Christ. We have been purified in order to live in covenant relationship with God. And that's the promise that we see in verse 3. And I heard a loud, 21 verse 3, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And this is a consummation of the promise that we see throughout the book of the, the Old Testament books and all the way into the New Testament is that the ultimate goal of heaven is to be with God, to be in fellowship and united in fellowship with him, worshiping and adoring and delighting in him, talking and walking and, and engaging in, in them. It's funny sometimes how you can forget the joy of relationship. My wife and I went out for a date, and a lot of times on our dates, we're trying to cover uh, the basis, and we we talk about, okay, what's coming up in our schedule? Uh, what kind of major decisions do we need to make? And, and uh, what's interesting about it is that sometimes we just don't talk to each other. So a couple of weeks ago when we were, went out, 
we just went for a long drive and we just talked and talked and and we came back and we're like that was one of the best dates we've had in a long time and we realized that it was the joy of relationship the joy of just talking to each other and not just conducting business and unfortunately that can happen in marriages it can happen in relationships can't it where where we have more of a uh, just a, a an exchange instead of real relationship you can find this in the church too where we have sort of a high by relationship and we don't get to the deeper issues but when we do there's there's a resonating there's a burning in our chest of of joy and fellowship and we we, we want to delight and 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 spend time and 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 engage with this person because we've been brought into relationship with them in Christ Jesus and so there is this wonderful promise here of relationship the dwelling place of God is with man that's that's the whole picture that's what separates um, Israel in the Old Testament is that God dwelt with them. He literally brought his presence down and dwelt in the center of them. The, the, the tabernacle was in the center of the camp and it, it went. And it was a great judgment when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, lifted and left them. And we see this happening in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory leaves the temple never to return, right? And then Christ comes and he is the new temple. And he, he restores that. That's, that's what that whole imagery in the New Testament is when Jesus says that he will destroy the temple. He is the temple. He is the access to God. It's through Jesus and his work on the cross that we're, we can enter into a personal relationship with God. Heaven is not a reward that we work for. Heaven is a relationship that is initiated by God in Christ Jesus to bring us in fellowship with him. And it's a joyful thing. So why is it that verse 8 ends on such a negative note? He says, the one who conquers, the believer, will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have all this beautiful good news about a restored, the, the kainos, the, the, the quality of newness given to us, a new heavens and a new earth and all of this. But then we have this lake of the fire. It's like, ah, oh, come on. We want to talk about heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? I think there was a survey done in, in 2010 in Canada here. And I think it was just under 50%, you know, we've really secularized, believed in heaven. But less than a quarter of those people believed in hell. See, we like the idea of the good place. We don't like the idea of the bad place. But the Bible presents to us reality. It presents to us the balance. Because this world is passing away. And it's passing away because we are sinners. It, we're passing away because we are under the judgment of God. This morning, every person listening to this broadcast is under the judgment of God. You will die one day. You will have to face God in person one day. You will be accountable. And your destiny will either be this glorious vision of heaven and restored relationship with God. 
or it will be one of eternal punishments, burning in a lake of fire. Why is that? Because God is a just God. Because there is a penalty for sin. And the reality is that God will not be mocked. We are accountable to him. And we have a responsibility. When his word comes to us, we have a responsibility to receive it. We have a responsibility to hear. We have a responsibility to believe. Verse 5 says, these words are trustworthy and true. The question is, do you accept them as trustworthy and true? Do you accept that there is a God who has created a perfect world? And that we in our sin have been cast out of the garden and alienated from him. Because instead of worshiping as God, we try to be God. We try to be our own God. And we try and manage our own lives. And even we try and work out our own salvation. And we do it overtly or subtly. We can be like the elder brother and the prodigal son that we talked about where we labor and do our religious actions and we attend services like this as a means of earning our reward. This is not how you earn your place in heaven. Heaven is a gift. It's given to worthless sinners like you and me because we've all fallen short. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And if we don't repent, we will end in this lake of fire. When we began this series where we started streaming, we looked again at the natural disaster situation in Luke 13. And Jesus said, repent, lest you likewise perish. This is the end for the perishing. This is what it looks like. Again, we're not talking about literally burning up in flames in hell. The reality is going to be so much worse because we will be under the active wrath of God. So there is a, a real urgency that comes with this. We have a beautiful picture of heaven, but we also have a reality and a picture of hell. And you cannot appreciate heaven without understanding the reality of hell. You can't accept the good news without understanding and accepting the bad news. The bad news is that you are a sinner. The bad news is that without the intervention of Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. But the good news is that you don't have to. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Would not perish in this lake of fire. Would not end their lives as cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerer, idolaters, and liars. They would not perish, but have eternal life. For all who would believe on him, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. It is only through belief and trust in the Son of God that you can have access to this. Unbeliever, your situation is dire this morning. The scriptures presented plain. This is trustworthy and true. But believer, you have a great gift given to you 
in Christ Jesus that can enable you to deal with difficulty and trial with a view to the end. It can motivate and provide the motivation and the strength to endure because with a view of the end, you can live through the middle and you can thrive in a way that glorifies God. Unbeliever, you have an opportunity this morning because the invitation is extended to you. For whatever reason, you're watching this. And maybe you're our religious. Maybe you've been a part of uh, a tradition where you've gone to church and you've given alms and you've done whatever it is. But you've been laboring under the assumption that heaven is a reward for your efforts and not a gift to a reckless and, and idolatrous sinner. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He will give you forgiveness and grace. But you have to repent not just of your sin, but of your self-righteousness, of your religiosity. Whatever it is that's keeping you from coming into a real and living and true relationship with Jesus Christ, you must return, you must repent of, and turn to him. May our God help you to see this, even as we see this, this hope of heaven, even as we get this vision of the end, would it influence us to directly act now, that we would be so heavenly-minded that there would be great earthly good done to glorify and to enjoy God as we were designed to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the visions that you have given to us in, uh, in the scriptures, the vision that you gave to John and recorded for us to help us to see the end clearly so that we can see the present clearly. Help us, Lord, to take note of this, to believe the words that are trustworthy and true, and to know the joy and the privilege of relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to meditate on the end, to know the end from the beginning, and to pers persevere in the middle. In Jesus' name, amen.